Well, please turn in God's Word to this psalm, Psalm 18. You find it on page 545 of the Church Bible. Psalm 18, and we're going to read just now the first 19 verses of the psalm. Uh, We're going to look at the psalm over the course of this morning and this evening's services, as I mentioned earlier. Um, We'll be looking at these first 19 verses this morning. So let's read Psalm 18, uh, beginning with the title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord, on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress... I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high He took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Psalm 18 is a very important psalm. Uh, 
Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, Of course, all the Psalms are important. They are all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But in the forest of the Psalter, there are some Psalms that stand out like particularly big trees. Uh, They stand out as extraordinary. Uh, And that's true of all of Scripture, of course. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's all from God. Uh, It is all important. But that's not to say that it is all exactly the same. There are some parts of Scripture that are more weighty, that are more significant, that are more important than other parts. And there are several signposts in Psalm 18 that tell us that we ought to pay special attention to this psalm. There is just the sheer length of the psalm, for example. Fifty verses. It is by far the longest of the psalms that we have looked at so far in the Psalter, hence two sermons to deal with it. And then uh, there's the signpost of the title. The title of Psalm 18 is the second longest title in the Psalter. And that tells us uh, something straight away. It tells us that this is unusual, that we want to pay attention to this. But also the title gives us very important information. It tells us that this psalm was composed on one of the most significant occasions in the whole of the Old Testament. After the death of Saul, when David was anointed king at Hebron, the day when his kingdom was established on the earth, when God made a covenant with him, when God promised him a dynasty that would last forever. This is one of the highest pinnacles, if not the highest pinnacle, of the whole of Old Testament revelation. And so the fact that Psalm 18 comes from that particular historical moment gives it an added weightiness. And then there's the position of Psalm 18. The position of the psalm in the Psalter. Uh, You may know that there is a structure to the Psalter. Uh, There are five books that comprise the book of Psalms, five separate sections. But as well as those five books, those five divisions within the Psalter, there's also a pattern and there is a flow within each of those books. And book one and book five of the Psalter, the first and the last of the books of the Psalter, both of these books have a pair of Psalms that come right in the middle. And these two Psalms that come in the middle of book one and the middle of book five, these two Psalms mirror the opening two Psalms, which are an introduction to the whole Psalter. Psalm one is a psalm about God's law, and Psalm 2 is a psalm about God's Messiah. And Psalm 18 and Psalm 19 are like a hinge, a pivot, right in the center of book 1. Psalm 18 is about God's Messiah, and Psalm 19 is about God's law, 
And we see exactly the same thing in book 5. Right in the middle of book 5, side by side, you have Psalm 118, a psalm about God's Messiah, and Psalm 119, which is a psalm about God's law. So this, this psalm comes along with Psalm 19 at a very important junction in book 1 of the Psalter. And it, 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 as you think back over the Psalms that lead up to Psalm 18, it's also significant. Because Psalms 3 to 17 are full of strife between David and his enemies. Psalm 2 talked about this great king, this wonderful Messiah, uh, whose kingdom was going to be established on the earth, who was going to deal with God's enemies, who was going to rule the whole world. And as you sing from Psalm 3 to Psalm 17, there's not much sign of that. All we see is battles and strife and conflict. And then we come to Psalm 18, which celebrates the coming of God's kingdom and his anointed king. So for all of these reasons, these signposts, they tell us that Psalm 18 deserves our special attention. It's a very important psalm. It opens and closes with uh, a kind of parallel prologue and epilogue. There are lots of repeated words and ideas in the opening and closing verses. And these two, the fact that the psalm is bracketed or bookended by these two sections tells us these set the tone. Uh, They set the theme for the whole psalm. Let's just look at them again. Uh, Let's read verses 1 to 3 and then 46 to 50. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And then lots of echoes of those words and those ideas at the end of the psalm in verses 46 to 50. See if you can pick out uh, some of the repeated words. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. And shows steadfast love to his anointed. To David and his offspring forever. There are more names for God in verses 1 and 2 crammed in there in a very small space than anywhere else in the whole Psalter. Ten names and titles all together. And really they're all about protection, aren't they? They're all about security. They're all about being delivered 
from enemies. David has come through a long, trying period of intense distress. You remember how he described it himself in 1 Samuel. He said, there is but a step between me and death. That was David's experience. That was what his life was like for months and months and months. But a step between me and death. One false step and I will plunge to my destruction. But now he has triumphed. Those days are gone. And he's acknowledging with thanksgiving that the Lord has delivered him. And he looks back and he sees the Lord's goodness and the Lord's power from beginning to end. That's what Psalm 18 is all about. And we see it in verses 1 to 3 and then in verses 46 to 50. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder at this point of reading a psalm and thinking about a psalm, do you find yourself asking the question, well, what has that to do with me? What has that to do with me? Maybe that's something that you struggle with in the singing of the psalms. That's certainly something that many Christians uh, shrink back from. They, they, they don't like singing the psalms because of all this talk about enemies and affliction and all of that. What has that to do with me? The kind of enemies that David is talking about here and struggling with in these psalms it's very alien to the experience of most of us. It's not alien, of course, to the experience of many, many, many Christians in the world. But it is perhaps alien to us. We are not the anointed king of Israel. And so maybe we find it hard to, to enter into to David's experience and to really relate to what he's talking about here. But when you think about it, we do all know what it is to experience intense anguish and distress in one form or another. Because we live in a fallen world. And hard things happen to us regularly. We experience grief and serious illness, and chronic pain. And we know what it is to fail. We know what it's like when relationships break down. We know about anguish and distress. And so we need strength, don't we? We need a rock. We need a fortress. So where do we go? Where do we find that help? How do we access this strength? And Psalm 18 shows us how. And when you think about it, we do have enemies, don't we? They may not be flesh and blood enemies, but the Bible tells us that the world and the flesh within us and the devil are our enemies. And we need strength for spiritual warfare. We need a rock. We need a deliverer. So how does David access God as his strength? 
in fighting his enemies. What does it look like? What does it mean in practice to have God as your strength? What should we expect if we have God as our strength? Well, Psalm 18 shows us. So let's look then at the rest of the psalm, and we'll look at uh, the first half of the psalm now, and then, God willing, the second half this evening. I want us to look at the rest of uh, these verses, 1 to 19, uh, under two headings. First of all, in verses 3 to 6, there is the prayer for the Lord's deliverance. The prayer for the Lord's deliverance. David describes the situation that he's in in verses 4 and 5 using horrible, nightmarish imagery, doesn't he? It's the picture of uh, the tentacles of a monster slithering up out of the grave and wrapping themselves around and around its victim and, and dragging the victim back down into the grave to destruction. That's the way that David describes it. He talks about torrents of destruction assailing him. You imagine, maybe you've seen the pictures of a tsunami sweeping everything away before it. That's the picture that he's using. And David is saying that's what life has been like for him over the months that he has been on the run from Saul. Just a step between me and death in fear of his life, in danger from enemies on every side. That's his situation. So what does he do in the face of this overwhelming, terrifying threat? Well, verse 6, he prayed. That's what he did. He prayed. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. He doesn't put his trust in his own resources. He has hundreds of men with him, armed men, able men, but he doesn't look to them. He doesn't look to his own military cunning and expertise and strategy. He has these hidden strongholds up high in the desert, hidden fortresses. He's not depending on them. They're not his fortress. They're not his stronghold. He looks to God. He is my fortress. He is my strength. And looking to God for help, David says, was not a waste of time. Verse 6 again, from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. In the holy heights of heaven, God hears the prayer of this one man, and he answers that prayer. Now, you may never have been facing an army of Philistines. Uh, you may never have been hunted by a paranoid king in the desert. But surely, surely we can all identify with verses 4 and 5. Haven't there been times, perhaps many times for some of you, when you've been so overwhelmed by your circumstances that you felt like there was only a step between you and death? 
crushing burdens and pressures and stresses. You feel as if the walls are closing in. You feel as if the roof is coming down. They're squeezing the joy and life and energy out of, out of your, your body, out of your soul. Perhaps it's concern for your children or your parents or your friends. Concern for their spiritual state. Concern for their physical state. And these verses are not an exaggeration. You felt as if the torrents of destruction were assailing you. The cords of death were entangling you. Or grief. That's something that just about everyone here has experienced. We talk, don't we, about the billows of grief. The waves, the torrents of grief that come crashing over us in our desolation. Perhaps there have been times when you have been seriously ill and you were literally being dragged down to death by serious illness. For others, it's depression. And you know that terrible, terrible experience. Worse, perhaps, than any physical illness. Not least because other people don't understand it. And there's such a stigma attached to depression. People say, oh, Christians don't get depressed. There's no such thing as depression. Nonsense. You know what the waves of unrelenting despair and darkness feel like so that you feel like you will never, ever be able to be happy ever again. Or perhaps it's the daily struggle of fighting against sin and against temptation. There's some besetting sin in your life, some powerful addiction, and it has entangled you, and it has ensnared you, and it assails you every single day. You can't get away from it. It's always there. As soon as you wake up in the morning... The last thing at night, maybe it's covetous thoughts that are eating you up, discontentment with your job or with your marriage or with your house or with your whole life. Maybe it's a hateful attitude. You just can't stop thinking hateful, bitter thoughts about another person. Everything that they do is filtered through this dark lens and they can't do anything right. Maybe it's lust and pornography. Maybe it's anger, explosive, uncontrollable temper. Maybe it's a corrosive, toxic mindset that has wormed its way into your brain and you just can't shake it off. Verses 4 and 5 suddenly don't seem all that unrealistic to you. But what do you do? What do you do about it? Okay, you have this terrible problem. You have this distress. What do you do in your distress? And the psalmist tells us that we should do what he did. In my distress, I called upon the Lord... To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. That's what we have to do. 
when we're in distress, no matter how intense and overwhelming it might be, cry in faith to God. You notice David doesn't just say, I cried to God. He says, I cried to my God for help. The whole psalm is deeply personal. See that in verse 2, that repetition of the word my, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Again and again and throughout the psalm. This is deeply personal. David is saying to us here, don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in other people. Don't turn to programs and techniques. Cry to the Lord. Cry to your God for all the help that you need in your distress. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you should do. As we'll see later in the psalm, David doesn't just sit in the cave of Adullam having a prayer meeting, asking that God will keep him safe. No, he's busy, he's active, he's doing plenty of things. But this is what he does first. This is where he's looking to, above all, his trust is in the Lord. God is the source of all the help and all the deliverance that comes. Verse 3, I call upon the Lord and I am saved from my enemies. So I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but I am reminding you of something that we so easily forget. When you're in distress, pray. Pray first. Keep on praying. Pray in faith. Pray believing that the Lord really is your God. Pray believing that he will hear your cry, that even as you say these words by your bedside or in your living room or as we pray them in a prayer meeting, that those words are making their way all the way to God's temple, to God's dwelling place in heaven, that they are reaching his ears. You're not lost in the din. You're not indistinguishable from all the other prayers that are being offered up. Pray believing that your prayer is effective and that it is powerful because God says that it's effective and powerful. What a comfort this is to be able to pray in our distress. We should feel such pity for the poor people of the world who have no faith, who have no rock, who have no stronghold. They're living through verses 4 and 5, just as we are. They're experiencing all of these things that I've talked about. And they feel overwhelmed, and they feel completely helpless. And they have nowhere to turn. There's so much anxiety and depression and mental illness in our society at the moment, isn't there? And it's because people feel assailed by these torrents of destruction. They're experiencing verses 4 and 5 in an unusual way. Their hearts of these poor people, their hearts are melting with fear. That's what we saw in the pandemic. Poor unbelievers, terrified 
of death. How good that we didn't need to be afraid. The transgender agenda, making people doubt their very sense of who they are. The renewed specter of nuclear war, soaring energy costs and food costs and climate panic. How different it is for the Christian. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. The prayer for the Lord's deliverance. And then in verses 7 to 19, we see the picture of the Lord's deliverance. The picture of the Lord's deliverance. Did God hear? Did God act on what he heard? Well, verses 7 to 19 leave us in absolutely no doubt whatsoever. God heard all right. We don't have time to read it again, but just scan your eye over verses 7 to 19. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. It is a breathtaking display, isn't it, of God's sovereign power. This is what prayer does. This is what happens when David prays. Dale Ralph Davis says in his little commentary on the psalm, we have here nine verses of rapid-fire, mind-expanding, imagination-stretching verse. David prays, and this is what God does. Except it didn't happen like that, did it? That's not what happened. You go back and you read First and Second Samuel and you can scar those two books from beginning to end and you won't find anything like this. When did God come swooping to David's aid riding on the cherubim? When did he send earthquakes and storms and lightning bolts? It didn't happen. Not like this. And that's because... This is poetic language. David could simply have said, God moved heaven and earth to answer my prayer. And that would be true, but it doesn't have quite the same effect, does it? It doesn't have quite the same bite as this does on our hearts. And hopefully the language that David is using here sounds familiar to most of us after the months that we've spent studying our way through Exodus. Because all of this imagery here are, is echoes of the plagues, for one thing, in Egypt. Uh, thunder, hailstones, fire, 
darkness. Uh, There are echoes of Mount Sinai, when the mountain trembled and shook, and there was smoke and fire and lightning on the summit as God came down to earth. And there are echoes of the Red Sea uh, in verses, uh, verse 15. Uh, God parted the sea so that the channels of the sea were exposed. So this is Exodus language. And as David looks back over how God has delivered him from his enemies, that's what he understands to have been happening. He's seeing his deliverance. He's interpreting his deliverance on a level with these awesome events. He's saying, my deliverance, my salvation was an exodus level deliverance. Now, when you compare the actual historical events that David is thinking about here, they didn't look nearly so spectacular. And yet David is saying that's what was really going on behind the scenes. Whether it looked like it or not, God was no less at work in my circumstances than he was when he brought Israel out of Egypt. You think of David going up against Goliath. There was no literal thunderstorm in the heavens when David went out against the giant. He just had five stones and his shepherd's slingshot. He didn't even have any armor to wear. But he went, as he tells Goliath, in the power of God, and it was God who sent that stone whirling through the air into Goliath's forehead. When Saul sent men to kill David in his bed, David's wife, Michal, warned him and helped him escape through the window and run away. And then she put a statue, an idol, uh, into the bed with straw and hair uh, to try to delay his enemies discovering that he was gone. There weren't any lightning bolts from heaven, but David is saying, God was just as powerfully at work delivering me then as in the Exodus. When David attacked the Amalekites who had plundered Ziklag and taken away his men's wives and children hostage, there were no coals of fire that fell from heaven. There were no hailstones that pounded the men into submission. No, David was guided by a chance encounter with an Egyptian slave of one of the Amalekites who had got sick during the raid and been left behind. And that slave was able to guide David with his 400 men to the camp of the Amalekites where they defeated a much larger army in a surprise attack. It all just seems very ordinary, doesn't it? Very prosaic. It's not spectacular. It's not the kind of awesome spectacle that we're reading about here in these verses. But David, as he looks back, he is saying God's power was at work every bit as much. Verses 7 to 15 describe David's deliverance in these apocalyptic, spectacular terms, Exodus language. But then verses 16 to 19 are so beautifully personal, aren't they, and individual. What's the point of all this 
noise and all this fury and all this shaking of the universe that's going on that's described in verses 7 to 15. It's not this time to give the Ten Commandments as it was at Mount Sinai. It's not to bring two million Israelites through the Red Sea to the Promised Land. What's the point of it all? It's so that God can save one man who is overwhelmed by his enemies. Verse 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Friends, if we can just try to capture something of the the feel of these verses, the, uh, let them have the impact on our hearts that David intends them to have. There's such an encouragement to us to pray when we're in distress. Why do we not call on the Lord when this is what happens? When you call on the Lord, your prayer goes all the way up to heaven, to his temple, and into his ears. And this is how he responds. But we need faith to believe it. Because it doesn't look like this is what's happening. It would be much easier to pray. Everybody would be at the prayer meeting tonight without exception, wouldn't they? If every prayer that we prayed, as soon as people said, Amen, there would be a loud thunderclap. And immediately uh, there would be hailstones coming down and striking down God's enemies. And there would be the Lord there in visible form riding on the cherubim. It would be very easy to fill the prayer meetings if that was what happened. But this is what's happening. It's just that we don't see it because we live by faith and not by sight. And so we need to believe that this is what is happening when we pray, when we cry to the Lord in our distress. We sat in the minor hall in the resource room in the classroom on Wednesday evening for four hours here. And we took it in turns, one by one, to pray about TOTS and about the CY groups and about the Sabbath school and about outreach in our community. And this evening in our prayer meeting, we'll gather and we'll pray for God's help for those in distress, for those who are in various kinds of need. And these verses show us what is happening in the spiritual realm when believers pray. As soon as we pray in faith, our prayers are heard in God's temple by God. And immediately there is unleashed this awesome, momentous, mighty spiritual activity. God is mobilizing his forces to come to the aid of his people in their distress. And if we could just see that by faith, we would have no difficulty at all praying in our quiet times and in our family worship times and in our church prayer meetings. This is what the Almighty God does for you and for me when we pray for his help whether it's in the darkness of depression or the torrents of grief or in the grip of fierce temptation that feels irresistible. He sent from on high. He took me. 
he drew me out of many waters. Our enemies are too mighty for us, but they're not too mighty for him. And David is showing us here that he comes to little you and me in our helplessness, in our vulnerability, and he rescues us. And he draws us out from all our affliction and all of our trouble. It doesn't mean that the affliction and the trouble goes away. But it means that he's with us in it. And he strengthens us for it. Amen. As we stand, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that we today, with even greater Confidence than David can call you my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. We pray, Lord God, that you will help us in our distress, in our need, in our anguish, to look to you and to call upon you and to believe that you hear our cry and that you answer with awesome deeds of righteousness. We praise you that you are a God who does wonders and that you do wonders not just for your own glory but for your people's sake. We pray, Lord God, that those who are in particular distress just at this time, uh, here today in this room or known to us, we pray, O oh God, that you will draw near to them and that you will answer their cry and that you will send them your help. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.